You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 13. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Today we're going to be talking about movies. Thomas and I. Oh, were... wait, wait. You're supposed to say welcome to the show where we pick at the news along the American. Oh, and yeah. then I introduce. Oh. Yeah, well, well welcome to the show. We're, we're picking apart news and stuff. <laughs> Yeah. <coughs> what was I saying? Uh, oh yeah, movies. Thomas yeah. and I were talking right. about uh, about movies. We decided, you know, it's Friday. It's a slow news uh, day. We, we, we don't want to talk over. about. No, this is great. Let's just keep it like okay. this. Okay, we'll roll Let's with keep it. it. Real baby, we'll roll with it. We're rolling right. with it. Keeping it real. Um. <laughs> so yeah, so we uh, we were trying to figure out what we we're going to talk about today. You know, do we want to talk about you know stories like racism and and shootings at newspapers and then we started talking about truly interesting topics like uh, movies. And I, I brought up the topic of uh, 90s movies versus present-day movies. And I and I watched two movies over the past week that are from the 90s that I remember watching when I was a teenager in that time and thinking they were awesome. One was Event Horizon, which is, of course, a uh, horror movie. That, coincidentally, they're both related to wormholes. I just realized that. And the second one was Stargate. Not the SG-1 TV series, but the actual original movie Stargate. Um, and I realized the special effects that, as I had remembered these movies, because it had been a, a number of years since I watched them, the special effects, as I remember them from, from when I originally watched them, were pretty good. And then watching them with my 2018 eyes, I was very critical and judgmental and cynical of the special effects. For example, the uh, one of the animals from the other planet in the Stargate movie was supposed to be this uh, camel... Uh, beast kind of a thing and uh, it was very easy to recognize that they just put this big puppet on top of a horse (laughs) (laughs) I just couldn't get over that I'm like oh it is a puppet on top of a horse terrible I I need my CGI and I become Thomas I've become a snob to some of the old movies uh, because because of uh, maybe getting spoiled on all the the modern day special effects it's just can't watch movies the the same way with the same wonder I did back when I was a kid. Yeah, one one movie that has aged well is The Matrix. If you go back and watch it, the special effects uh, still yes. feel good. The movie still ages well. It and it really did change cinema because before The Matrix you had brainless action movies, and after The Matrix you had uh, action movies that often had some substance to them. Uh, they, they didn't all have substance, but they often made an attempt at having some substance. And the idea of using an action movie to explore a philosophical uh, ideolo- ideology is, uh, had not been done, I don't think, before that time. Uh, one movie I watched on the airplane in my jet lag state was about uh, the Washington Post. I think it was called The Post. It's about the Washington Post publishing the Pentagon Papers and just how scary that was and how they were you know, threatened to go to jail for exercising the freedom of the press. And, uh, you know, fortunately for, you know, for them, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor at the end. It was the climax. The, um, the hero, the, the lady who ran the paper is walking out of the uh, Supreme Court having just won and we landed. <laughs> I didn't actually watch the last five minutes of the movie, so I don't know what happens after that. Uh, maybe the credits roll. I have no idea. Uh, but it, uh, you know, gave me a new respect for journalists and how, as a part of their job, sometimes they do put themselves at risk. Uh, less so in the United States, but even in the United States, there are, you know, threats to 
your safety, your freedom if you're a journalist. And, you know, with this really tragic shooting, uh, you know, the newspaper, from what I understand, did nothing wrong, right? The guy really was a terrible, terrible person. And he didn't like the fact that the newspaper let the world know that he's a terrible person. And uh, so he decided to take matters into his own hands and use uh, violence and uh, a really unfortunate uh, situation. Our thoughts and prayers are out uh, to the victims' uh, families. I think we're going to take a hard right turn here from movies into socialism, Thomas, but since we're going down this road. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, we started all light, not yeah, light we're and fluffy. Yeah, we talking about movies. <laughs> We're still, I mean, we had our we had our rehearsed and completely flopped intro, and now we're going to do movies, and now we're getting right back into the uh, the tar pit of uh, of of society. But that's all right. You're listening you know to you Liberty up. Buzzard off the rails with Thomas of the Cold and Dustin Hammett <laughs> with a study hangover. Yeah, that's that's the truth. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, terrible people being terrible. Socialism. No, I don't think we're talking about socialism. I think we're talking ter- terrible people being terrible. So. Yeah, the guy, I, I don't even know his name. I'm kind of happy I don't, uh, who perpetuated the shooting uh, up in Maryland. He was just a jerk, and he's just a narcissist. And, uh, you know, you have a lot of the armchair sociologists these days who think that social media, and maybe they're right, I don't know. Social media culture these days is breeding a nation of, of narcissists. But what we can definitely tell about this individual's history is, you know, the original beef that he had with his paper is they published a story about him pleading guilty to stalking and harassing a female classmate. So, you know, he's a stalker type. He's a type that can't take no for an answer, takes everything very personally, and just will not let go. These types of people, as a former police officer, I will tell you, are very dangerous people. People who can't let let things go are very dangerous people. And he was one of those. Um, and so he's going to grasp at anything that makes him righteous. And so uh, he defended himself in the defamation lawsuit against the paper. And one of the, the opinions that the judge wrote, I believe it was the judge who wrote this opinion, stated that he obviously didn't understand uh, the, defama- the, 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 the legal, definition, legal definition of defamation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is why they found against him. But logic does not have a place in the soul of someone who is completely occupied with their own self and righteousness and self-responsibility does not uh, enter into their equation and what are they going to do um you know if it keeps devolving into this type of situation they are going to take action like they took i mean you could almost extend this uh to the 9-11 uh bombers you know the, the psychosis there was i think it's a little bit different because it was not necessarily all to do with themselves but there was a lot of narcissism involved in that as well I think narcissism is is a very uh, closely. It's an armchair psychologist myself with absolutely zero credentials aside from reading a lot of books. Um, I can tell you that sociopathy and, and narcissism are are very closely linked. At least that's what I think. Uh, from what I understand, around the world, uh, almost every country uh, and every culture has a vampire myth. Uh, almost every culture has a dragon myth. Uh, and almost every culture has vampires. And, you know, maybe the dragon myths are because in early days, these cultures came across uh, dinosaurs or dinosaur bones. But then you have to wonder, where did the vampire myths come from? And it may be, you know, that vampires are real and they're just doing a really good job of hiding. Um, but I think a more plausible explanation 
is that vampires are real in a different kind of way where they're not sucking your blood necessarily, but they are hiding and preying on the weak. And um, we have this actually in um, one of the industries that I work in, there's been some predators that are being kind of revealed with this Me Too movement. And some of them have been preying on the weak for decades, uh, potentially, and or allegedly, I should say. And it's it's really tragic right? like that there are these like truly evil people that look to be so normal like a, the whole appeal of a vampire myth is that the vampire looks like a normal person you don't realize that they're a vampire until uh it's too late typically and we see that with really terrible folks and uh often we like to talk about solutions and i i don't feel like there is a solution for this like this kind of a shooting that happened at this newspaper is the same kind of shootings that we had 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Uh, it's the same sort of things in countries that you don't have guns. People are doing it with knives and with cars. You know, they, they have a beef. And it's not like he was motivated by some terrorist group or some terrorist ideology. He just like had his own demons. He wasn't borrowing anybody else's demons. He had his own demons. And I don't know what the short-term solution is. I definitely don't know a non-spiritual solution, right? Like he, he needs to be regenerated uh, into a new person for him not to act like this. And he needed to have already been regenerated uh, to not have shot uh, these folks. So it's a, it's a really terrible problem, but in a sense that, that demon, that, that evil is in all of us. Uh, some of us let it run our whole lives though. And I think that that's, potentially what we see in this guy's case. Uh, I'm not very familiar with, with what happened, but it is really tragic. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very tragic, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's that darkness within all of us. Right. Um, and you know, whatever spiritual, whatever type of spiritualism you claim, it gives you a sense that there's a greater purpose. It's a, an anti nihilism, antidote. I guess that's a contradiction in terms. It's a nihilism antidote. Um, and uh, one could argue that nihilism is, is quite possibly in relation to your fellow man very detrimental because if nothing matters, then uh, you have people like the, the Klebels and the Harrises of the world who will walk into a high school and, and shoot everything up because they feel that nothing, nothing matters. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. I'm not sure. You familiar with Jordan, Jordan Peterson, Thomas? I'm not. He is a um, clinical psychologist who is also a professor at University of Toronto. He's been embroiled in a lot of political debates uh, right now because of his uh, stance against um, the Bill C-16 in Canada, which uh, put into the effective law of anti-hate speech, and uh, particularly as it as it pertains to uh, transgenders. And his whole point was, you you can't force me what to think. You can't force me what to say. So we took a very hard line, absolute stance on it, and he got embroiled, and he became very famous uh, because of that. And I started looking into him and uh, researching what he says about. He's very spiritual, and uh, a lot he, he derives a lot of his. I think he derives all of his psychological theories from the likes of Jung and archetypes and, uh, you know, collective consciousness and uh, moral absolutism, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things he's he preaches against is nihilism and how nihilism is so detrimental to our society. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I highly recommend you read his book, 12 Rules for Life, anybody who ever listens to this. It's, it's actually a really fascinating book, a really good book. I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, I, I come at things from a slightly different direction as a follower of Christ. Um, you know, Jesus has really specific teachings about uh, that are basically as incompatible with nihilism as you could possibly imagine, right? Like turn the other cheek, um, bless those who curse you, like um, loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. <laughs> it's like there's not a lot of room uh, for things to become meaningless or for things to become all about you. If, if you're following uh, those teachings and, and, and believing he is who he says he is. Um, but I think I have come across that professor. I think I may have seen a debate that he was in with a journalist um, where she yeah, kept saying, so you're one. saying, so you're saying, <laughs> and trying to get him to say uh, all of these things that he wasn't saying. And she was using uh, just the worst straw man arguments one after another. And he was just so calmly uh, reacting uh, and to what she was saying, it was, it was a kind of a master class in how to handle a hostile person uh, in a debate. Yeah, uh, he was, actually came out and later well said that that was one of the most stressful interviews he's ever done. It was one of his earliest interviews. And uh, he said that it, it I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, that it uh, it took a lot of self-control. Um, and because, you know, like Braveheart, back in the Braveheart movies, speaking of 90s movies, you know, he didn't want to take the the mind-numbing agent at the end because he didn't want to scream out in pain. Um, he had to have his wits about him. And Jordan Peterson was you know, kind of saying the same thing, is that uh, it, was a, it was a great struggle not to become emotional because he had to have his wits about him the whole time in order to effectively refute what uh, what, what was going to start coming out at him. And one of the funniest things about that interview is at the very, very beginning of that interview... Uh, she starts going at him, and he completely dismantles her argument. And I can't even remember exactly what it was about. I have to go back and watch it. But one of the things he says is he kind of chuckles about it. He's like, aha, I got you. And she kind of chuckles back and says, ah, yeah, you did kind of get me. And you can tell at that point that she got so angry that it became personal. And at that point for her, she was going to do everything she could to try to discredit Jordan Peterson uh, because I think she felt embarrassed um, at how she came at him and he completely dismantled her argument. And I think it's really instructive in a lot of ways of how emotion and taking a discussion and taking things personally can it can put us into defensive camps and can make us devolve into irrational attacks based on us feeling defensive, embarrassed, envy, attacked, et cetera, et cetera. So that was actually a really good interview. I highly recommend everybody watch that and read his book. I'm not getting any money from his book, by the way. Yeah. We'll we'll post a link uh, in the show notes that you can find at libertybuzzard.com forward slash 014 for episode 14. Um, I, I read this article recently uh, that I found really fascinating, and it was by a 911 dispatcher. And it was in response to uh, Permit Patty and Barbecue Betty, these ladies who were calling the cops on um, black people doing normal things in a white space. So in uh, Barbecue Betty's case, we talked about her yesterday. Um, she called the cops on a black family that was barbecuing at a park, trying to get them arrested for that. And then the more recent instance is of uh, a lady calling the police on a little girl who is selling water out in front of her house. <laughs> Um, 
which it's like I sold lemonade in front of my house. I sold, I think, three cups because I was in the cul-de-sac and there's nobody driving by. Uh, I learned a valuable uh, real estate Indeed. lesson, location, location, location. But I'm really glad I didn't have one of our neighbors trying to get me arrested um, or find or I mean, what in what what possible outcome are you wanting to happen to this little girl? Calling the police for her being an entrepreneur is the appropriate response. But anyway, this nine one this nine one one dispatcher uh, writes this article about how she gets calls like this. So she, back when she was a dispatcher, got calls like this every single day. This was a constant thing that happened. Of like, there's a suspicious man walking down the street, and it's like, is he doing anything? It's like, well, he's wearing a hoodie and he's black, and it's like that. You know, that's not a crime to wear a hoodie. It's not a crime to be black. And how she was constantly dealing with these sorts of calls. And Justin, I had this question for you because you, you were a police officer for many years. And ultimately, these calls get shuffled on to the cops uh, to go do something. Did you ever see calls like this where it was a totally bogus call of some racist person who wanted you to go and, you know, arrest some black person for something innocuous or just because they're looking, quote, looking suspicious. Oh, Thomas, 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 Thomas. So during my uh, time with the Austin, Texas police department, I worked in two different sectors. My first sector, I worked uh, on the east side of Austin, actually spanned both west and east as defined by I-35, which runs down the middle. But most of our calls uh, were taken on the east side and the east side of Austin is um, historically, uh, demographically, uh, very immigrant-heavy and very minority-heavy, especially in certain parts. There were black pockets and there were Hispanic pockets. And so that was my, that was when I was a rookie, though, that was my first three years on the police force was dealing with that demographic. Um, and then I went from that demographic to um, to a very... West Campus, West Austin, very affluent demographic, and uh, the the story that you're that you're referencing, which you know we'll put a link to in in the show notes. I got to tell you, this dispatchers absolutely hit the nail on the head. Cops. One of the things that drives me nuts about the national narrative right now is that uh, there's there there's a disparity of cops, and I know there's racist cops out there just because there's eighty thousand cops. A couple of them are going to be racist. Yeah, I get it. Um, but as a generality, the pl- this is based on my experience with one department and the people that I know. Cops are some of the least racist people out there because unlike a lot of the affluent, you know, whether it's white or just let's just say affluent because the affluent spans the spectrum. Unlike most of the affluent upper middle class, even middle middle class people out there, most of your police officers, whatever their background, have worked in low income uh, blue-collar, gang, just just poverty-stricken areas. And we're going to understand boots on the ground, those problems probably better than most 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 of your armchair sociologists out there because we, we, we worked in it. We saw it every single day. We know what the, what the, what the problem is, um, you know, up close and personal. So... When, pe- when when people call police officers racist, for that reason, it actually it drives me up the wall. Um, the now whether you want to actually link it to is it racist? I think this dispatcher is absolutely right. There are some people that were absolutely racist out there, um, or is it just a matter of uh, uh, 
privilege? Is it is it just privilege due to affluence? I think there's a lot of that as well. So based on my personal experience, I can say that we received uh, when I was when I was in the more affluent area, we received quite a few calls that were very similar to this. Um, you know, there were what we call suspicious person calls. So the caller calls in and says there's a suspicious person. And we're looking at the computer and we're looking at the notes and the notes say, uh, you know, one male, two males, what have you. Um, uh, a lot of times the description descriptors were black males uh, roaming around the neighborhood. And what's the first joke that, you know, I would usually make to my partner is, oh, my gosh, there's a black man in a white neighborhood. Oh, my gosh. And I'm going to have to go check it out because there's a black man in a white neighborhood. Cops hate taking those calls. Because inevitably, what we would do is we would go up there, and now we look like a bunch of like like a bunch of racist creeps because we're going up there responding to a call because we have to. Um, so we go up there, and a lot of times these are uh, guys who are um, they're homeless, they're on parole, they are on the bottom of the economic spectrum, but they have a job passing out these little flyers that we all get in our door handles, you know, the people that live in the suburbs, that you, get in your, that, that you find your door handles when you get home, these phone books that are attached to your door handles, these flyers, you know, somebody's got to do that, right? And who are they going to hire to do this? You know, you're very, very lowest skilled individuals. And so sometimes, a lot of times, as we know in the criminal justice system, the lowest uh, skilled individuals are going to be your parolees. Um, and so, uh, they're, they're walking around out there, hanging out flyers and they get called on all the time. And, you know, more than a few times I got dirty looks as I was, uh, confronting these individuals, contacting these individuals because I had to, because somebody in the neighborhood thought they were suspicious. So it was my duty as a law enforcement officer to go up there and talk to them to make sure they weren't suspicious. Because if they were in fact suspicious and I didn't talk to them, you know, guess who would get uh, get get run up uh, uh, run up the chain of command for not doing your job? So you have to talk to them. So you get up there, you talk to them, they're like, "Hey, man, I'm just trying to make a living." You know, they got their notes. Uh, I talked to the boss. Yeah, they are actually employed. The boss is usually driving around in a car, picking them up, driving them to different neighborhoods, and you let them go. And that that's all there is to it. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Yeah, and no one ever blames, uh, or re- until recently, blames the folks calling nine one one. They only blame the cops when you. It it is true you're just doing your job because if it, something bad is happening, right? Because sometimes there are you know, like suspicious people uh, that are about to do something yeah. bad. Yeah. Um, although happen. usually I feel like those people have a certain type, right? It's like there's a guy with a gun walking down the street. It's a very different kind of like, oh, there's just a guy walking down the street. Like, I feel like that could be very easily sorted into two Well, now you have to be careful uh, with that little... one too, Thomas, because a really good criminal is going to completely blend in. You got really bad criminals, the dumb ones, they're easy to catch. And then you got the really good ones who know exactly how to blend in. So, I mean, it, it, you have to be, that's why cops have to investigate every possibility of wrongdoing is because even though we know as police officers that a vast, vast majority of the people out there are just people going about their daily lives, the minute that you let one slip by, you, you as a uh, individual police officer, you as a police force for the city, you as a police nationally are looked down upon because that one got by. Look at the 9-11 bombers. 
Um, look how this, the CIA, the intelligence services, the FBI were absolutely excoriated in the media and in the public national opinion after the fact because they let these guys slip by. Um, never mind how many you know they actually caught. It's the, always the one that slips by that are going to define how you did such a poor job. So the remedy to that, the natural remedy to that is you investigate everything. So bringing that back to, you know, Barbecue Betty and Permit Patty and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm going to disassociate this for a second from racism because sometimes you just have grumpy people out there that, uh, you know, you have uh, kids selling lemonade, uh, regardless of race, you have kids selling lemonade out on the street in some suburb and you have Permit Patty out there who says, you know, they're doing something wrong. Or even the the, the neighbor who calls the police because, you know, there's an 8, 9, or 10-year-old playing out the front lawn and the mother gets arrested from that. There's a news story uh, a a couple years ago because that exact thing happens. The police officer has got to take the worst-case scenario into mind, has got to go investigate that. Um, Now, the problem with the individual police officer is how much leeway does that individual police officer have to have to make judgment decisions? And what is the risk to that police officer if he makes a judgment decision and because he's a human being and no human being is perfect, if that police officer makes the wrong call, makes a mistake, not 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 an intentional mistake, makes an uh, what you what I think we agreed to call an innocent mistake, but he makes the wrong call and somebody gets by. Um, what's the what's the risk to that individual police officer? I'll, I'll uh, I'm going to wrap my point up with uh, one final example. There was a uh, UT, uh, University of Texas co-ed that was murdered by a mentally ill uh, homeless uh, person a couple years ago. That trial is actually still ongoing. A big part of the news story that came out after the suspect was found uh, was there was a a county north of Austin, Texas called Williamson County, the, the county that I live in. There was a law enforcement officer there that encountered this individual. Um, and the, talked to the, to, to the suspect, this is before the murder, talked to the suspect and said, hey, you know, w- what do you need? This cop was honestly just trying to help a person out. And the guy said, I'm headed down to Austin. So I think the, and this is me paraphrasing, I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting all the facts right. The law enforcement officer says, okay, great, I'll, I'll give you a ride to the county line to, to make your, your, your trip a little bit shorter, trying to help this guy out. He might have given a ride all the, all the way to Austin, I can't really remember. Well, after this suspect, this mentally ill man, commits this gruesome murder against this, uh, this, this girl at the University of Texas, now all of a sudden this police officer is under fire for having helped this individual out. And this is the kind of things that, that law enforcement officers, that police officers face on a daily basis that most people have, have no, no clue about. It's like you help this person and they go commit a crime. What's the personal risk that I take on myself doing this? So as a police officer, a lot of times you feel like you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You're damned if you do. You're damned if I don't. And, you know, if, if something goes bad, uh, I'm going to end up in the media. My reputation is going to be torn apart. What's the point of being a police officer? Um, so I think, you know, that's a lot of the problems that we see in the law enforcement community today. A lot of the, the disenfranchisement, uh, the dissatisfaction with the profession today on the behalf of police officers. And why you see a lot of young police officers like myself leaving the profession because of those reasons. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about at the top of the show about vampires and, you know, predators that are blending in 
with the uh, population. And they're not just, when they do that, they're not just harming the people that they harm when they do lash out on their victims, but they're also harming the population itself because since they're blending in, it makes the sheepdogs, you know, the people whose job it is to ferret out the predators and, and, you know, lock them up, uh, you know, their job that much harder because suddenly you have false positives because these predators are looking like normal folks. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough job, but, uh, before you call 911, just think, or just remember, all 911 calls are recorded. <laughs> Do you want yes, this call are. to be become a part of the public record? No, to wrap it up, and Thomas, and maybe, to bring it back full circle, I think a lot of these permit patties and barbecue betties, I think it really comes back to, I think it comes back to narcissism. Um, it, there's, there's not a lot of compassionate thought. It's all about me, 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 me. This is the way I want things. And when I don't get things my way, who are you going to call? It's not the Ghostbusters. <laughs> you called 911. Maybe take a thought before calling 911 uh, next time. But uh, do let us know what you think. Uh, vampire shootings, 911 calls gone bad. Uh, leave us a comment at libertybuzzard.com forward slash 014. I'm Thomas Sumstat Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. <laughs>